everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. So this week I have with me Sean, who I know from social media. And one of the things that catches my attention about Sean is that he posts a lot on racism issues, but also likes to chime in on issues concerning other marginalized communities. So Sean acts often as a supporter for other folks, not just within his own community. And I know a lot of times people that are in a marginalized situation don't have a lot of extra energy to expend defending other communities. Sean, you seem to do this quite a lot. You have a big interest in supporting, seems like most folks. And I appreciate that about your advocacy. And I also just wanted to have you on and have a conversation with you about who you are, what motivates you, why are you on there, and why is social justice such a big thing for you? Why don't we start with just telling the folks a little bit about who you are? First, thank you for those kind words. Thank you for having me and talking to me. I am a 40-year-old. I live in the suburbs, but I'm from the city of Chicago. I engage in a lot of social justice. I know some people consider that a pejorative, but I don't. I try to stick up for people who may not be able to stick up for themselves for a variety of reasons. I speak about a lot of social issues, a lot of racial issues, and also about the dynamic of how religion plays a huge role in American society. I also do rap music. It's a hobby. Lately, it's actually been looking like it could turn into something more. I asked you to get with me on working on an agenda. I wanted you to tell me a little bit about yourself and your issues and kind of write your own story there so that we could go through it in a way that made sense. And you decided to start from the beginning, literally your beginning. I think I've always been a little bit different. I would describe myself almost as a black sheep. And I mean, in like a lot of ways, even physically, I am five foot eight and uh, I have three brothers and they all are at least 5'11", and my, my youngest brother is 6'4". I have a weird eye color that a lot of people notice almost immediately in me. I have an idea of where I think it came from. It might just be a random mutation. It might have come from my mother, and I'll explain a little later how that works. When I was in fifth grade, I had like a below average childhood. I lived in a rough area of Chicago, the Humble Park neighborhood and the Cabrini Green neighborhood. And Logan Square. And those are all tough neighborhoods to grow up in. I used to go to school just like right down the street from my home. And I think it was fourth grade. I did really well on the standardized testing of the day. The teacher said, you should probably be going to a different school. And so I started going to a school for what they call gifted children, just because the potential that they saw in me, I tested like years ahead of what I should have been at the time. And I think it had a big effect on me because it got me out of my neighborhood and it got me to start seeing a lot of different people from different backgrounds, people who were impoverished like I was, all the way up to people who were affluent. The only problem with that is that in the neighborhoods that I'm from, that's not necessarily a good thing. You get looked down upon sometimes. You get looked at as bougie. I don't want to say I speak, I don't like the word proper English, but I enunciate my words. I use slang, but I also, when I started going to the school, the kids there spoke differently. There was a lot of white children. 
I don't want to stereotype, but a lot of people, you can tell sometimes location background from certain dialects and certain tones and certain words that give you context to where a person is. And so I would speak differently and that kind of thing would get me ridiculed, even within my own family. The only thing I want to say about that is that I don't blame my brothers for that because we were all part of a system that was broken. They were just doing what anybody else in that situation would have done. And I believe that even if one of my brothers was the one going to that school and talking like that, that I probably would have joined in if I hadn't had that experience in ridiculing them. I mean, I can go more into my childhood, but I think some of it will be covered in when we speak a little later on some other stuff. You said, in addition, your best friend happened to be white as well, and that you took some flack for that. Yes. My best friend, actually, he's Puerto Rican. He was adopted by a family who lived in the city, better part of the city, a nicer part of the city. And so his diction was kind of like how mine is now. And when I would call him, let's just say his name was Lewis. I would say, hi, Lewis. How are you? And then my brothers would be like, hi, Lewis. Hi, Lewis. How are you? That was kind of what I had to deal with. And it, and it does have a huge effect on you because you feel like, you know, maybe you don't belong. It did kind of separate me from my brothers a little bit to go to a different school because they all continue to go to their same schools. Do you identify as Black or do you identify as biracial? I identify as biracial, but I kind of have a tendency to lean towards my Black side. You tell me if uh, this is unfair, but I would say when I look at you on Facebook, I would think that when you kind of navigate society, when you're out and about, most people are going to read you as Black. Yes, yes, absolutely. Very few people will go to think, are you biracial? Are you mixed with anything? But a lot of people just say, hey, there's a Black guy. That's just, I'm sure that's how I'm seen in society, especially considering that I shave my head and I have a fairly large beard, especially nowadays. So the next point on your agenda moves right into the music. And you talk about the first time you heard freestyle rap, and apparently that really resonated with you. Yes. My brothers were used to hang out with some some guys from the neighborhood, and they would listen to you know hip-hop music, and I would listen to it too. And one day I came in, they were all in the room, there was music playing. These guys were just rapping, and it was stuff I had never heard before. And I was like, what is this? What are you guys doing? And they were like, it's just freestyle rap. And I said, like, what is freestyle rap? It's when you just start with whatever you want to start with and you continue to rap off of the top of your head. It's extremely difficult to do it well. Some rappers like Eminem and some of the battle rappers that most people may not have heard of are really good at coming up with stuff in the moment. And I used to be pretty good at that myself. But the first time I ever heard it, it was like I was hooked. Every day I would spend time just rapping, whether it was right. I wasn't writing stuff down. I was just freestyling. Wherever I go, I'd be thinking or I'd be saying it out loud. I never used to write my songs down. I never wrote a full song until I was 23 years old. And it was called Ill Shit. I still actually have access to that song. I have it on YouTube. Now I should mention to the listeners that I have not heard your stuff yet. So we talked about this before we did the recording and we will be using your music as the segues throughout the podcast so folks will get a chance to hear it when you're hearing the segues between the sections that is sean's music but i have not heard it yet so i can't really comment on any specific songs the way i have in some of the prior podcasts 
how does the music tie into the rest of your life? So right now, the way it's written in the agenda, it's sort of like its own thing off to the side. But what did music really do for you in your life? What was the reason for it? Why do you think you were so drawn to it? I think some of it has to do with my mental state and my mental health. I have bipolar disorder. Basically, when I was young, Somebody realized at my school, when I first started going there, somebody realized that there was a problem. I couldn't sit still. My report cards always had that little check mark under exercise and self-control. They sent me to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I think it was a psychiatrist or psychologist. They recommended that I get put on Ritalin or try to do something because I had some kind of mental health issues. And my parents were like, no, you don't have mental health. You just need to apply yourself and buckle down. For a very long time, that was the way they looked at it. It all ties into the music because my bipolar disorder, as it progressed, one of the hallmarks, one of the symptoms of bipolar disorder is it's like hyperactive thinking. The best way I can describe it is if my mind was a freeway, like the Autobahn, the words are going through my head at 100 miles an hour. And when I would rap, I would just take words. I would just pluck them out of the, the, the freeway and I would recite them. And this is all like off the top of my head. That's where the freestyle stuff came from. I really think the bipolar, I don't want to, yeah, I want to say helps because, you know, the Cyclops character from X-Men. I don't, but I saw you referenced that in the agenda. Okay. So Cyclops is a character who has the mutant ability to shoot lasers from his eyes. And when he gets this ability, the first time he realizes he can't control it. So if he opens his eyes, the lasers come out. Somebody creates a uh, set of kind of like glasses and he has a button on the side and it allows him to control when he wants to use the lasers. When I was medicated in 2012, the medications made it so that it was my brain was foggy and I couldn't really do it. So I stopped rapping for 10 years. I, I stopped writing. I stopped freestyling. It just couldn't come to me. It just wouldn't work with the medications I was on. Fast forward. So 2020, I had another doctor who gave me a different set of medications and that cleared things up in my head and allowed me to continue writing. So the medications are like the glasses for Cyclops. It allows me to slow it down enough that I can kind of move at my own pace, actually write with direction because my rapping before used to just be like a potpourri of just random thoughts. And that's how I was in conversation. That's how I was with basically my entire life was just me making random thoughts to people. It was very hard to bear being around me when I was younger, because I would be like, if you like, even right now, we were having this podcast 12, 15 years ago. When you would talk, the moment you paused, I would start interjecting with, are you going to say this? Or did you mean to say that? It was very hard to deal with when you're trying to have a conversation with somebody. All my life, I've known how to use words. I hope I don't sound like I'm bragging, but this is where it all comes from. My ability to, to make music comes from my ability to pull so many words and so many ideas. I don't know where it comes from. I think that's the kind of thing that just when I was riding the bus as a child, I would read every word on every building and read all the signs. I just loved reading as a kid. I think that comes out in my music today. I had kind of asked you a little bit about the content and what was inspiring your content. But when I hear you now, it sounds almost like the thing that appeals to you most is really the structure and the technique and the process of it more than maybe the specific content. That sounds pretty spot on. 
when I make music, sometimes I'll go with a very direct agenda. And that's usually on the social justice side or something where I feel very strongly about it. Like I have a track that it just deals with a myriad of issues with about confidence and sticking up for yourself and being a better person and doing the right thing. But a lot of my music is about me. It goes back so far, like I think it was like the 1700s. They used to have these things that were very similar to the battle raps of today. They used to call them snaps when you would make jokes like, oh, your mama's so this and something like, and, and somebody would come back and you're so ugly, like that kind of thing. And it was all in good fun. Rap for a lot of people became this thing, this boastful, I'll show you exactly what I can do with words. I can twirl the baton, so to speak, with my words, give you the razzle dazzle. That's how I feel when I write, is that I paint a picture. I give you visuals. I give you something that sounds clever. I got a lot of my uh, influence from rappers who are very lyrical, like Busta Rhymes and the Eminem's, much more than other rappers who are like storytellers, even though Eminem is kind of a storyteller, but some rappers just tell a great story. Like Jay-Z tells a great story. I don't really tell stories. I just want to entertain. So it's a creative outlet for you. Absolutely. You moved from that in the agenda to your family dynamics. Half of my family being Puerto Rican and half my family being Black actually caused more issues than I ever would have thought. When my Puerto Rican family found out, like my grandmother, when she found out that my mother was pregnant by a Black man, they essentially disowned her for that. I don't know what the level of racial stereotyping went into that or what it was exactly but I do know that like my mother she was so upset about the situation that she chose not to teach us Spanish at all and I still to this day don't know Spanish and I I want to learn it but it's just kind of like I get frustrated about it when I start trying to learn I feel like oh I should know this this should be something that is second nature to me and it's hard because I I have a hard time figuring the whole thing out. In my mind, I think I should have, during those formative years when you just kind of absorb everything naturally, that's when I should have been learning Spanish. For a long time, I held a, a real grudge about that with my family. And that's also part of why I identify more with my Black side, because I feel like a lot of my Black family members embraced me more. My grandmother, she was like all roses for the most part, roses and, and sunshine. She was a very nice woman. She always had a smile on her face. She was very religious and she loved Jesus and always brought it up to the point where we actually don't really speak anymore because when they found out I was an atheist, everybody kind of backed up off of me from on both sides. A lot of people were like, eh, I don't know how I feel about talking to you anymore. And why are you so negative? And why are you questioning the Bible? That all relates because my Black side, I think they embraced me. And my Puerto Rican side, I think it was 
a lot of strict chastising. There was strict chastising on the black side too, but it was also like, you know, we care. But the Puerto Rican side, it was like, just do this. You got to do this. Don't ask questions. You guys know the difference between right and wrong. So, you know, that's it. That's got to have an impact. For them to disown your mother for having children with a Black man, and you look Black, it's got to make you think, what do they think of me? Absolutely. And I found out not much later in life. When I was, I want to say like 12 years old, somewhere 10 to 12 years old in that area. My cousin, when he was born, the doctors did a really bad job and they removed him improperly and he ended up being a quadriplegic. My family sued the doctor. Uh, Subsequently, they had enough money that they always had a huge home, the newest cars, they would take him on vacation. And on top of that, my aunt that was taking care of him, they would actually get money from the state for taking care of him. They didn't really want for anything. So Christmas Eve would always be at their house because they always had the largest house. It was more than enough to accommodate the entire family. And one year, my uncle, he would play Santa. So in addition to the gifts, since they had a lot of money and liked to spread it around, which is they were very generous. My uncle bought his niece a 200 something dollar pair of white leather boots for Christmas. And they did the whole thing where he comes in as Santa Claus. They had this huge tree, like dozens and dozens of gifts and they're passing them out. And they, she's like, oh my goodness. She opens them up. She's showing them to everybody. And my gift that year from my uncle was a small keychain that had a clasp on it and a little link and then a small basketball. It fit in the palm of my hand. And it was in this vacuum packed plastic. I was trying to pull it out. And when I finally yanked it open and pulled it out, the basketball flew. It was made out of like aluminum or something like that, like a very thin metal. And it hit the ground and cracked in half. And that was my gift. Like, those are the kind of gifts that I got from them. And it told me basically all that I needed to know. That was the moment when I realized, yeah, you know what? They don't see you as one of them. You're an outsider. And then on top of having that family tension that was already stewing, you somehow came into atheism. I came into atheism, you know, just listening to YouTube videos. And it was one of those things. And I know a lot of atheists go this way. I was a believer. I always had questions as a child. And people would always tell me, you just can't question it. You just have to have faith. It never made sense to me. But I also behaved in a way as somebody who believes in a God. I used to think that there was like a running tab. And for everything that you did bad, you'd have to do something good to kind of balance the books. When I realized that I was an atheist, I was just like, I really don't believe that there's a God or hell or any of that stuff. I think it's all a myth. And when that happened and I started telling people in my family, I was told I'm of the devil, that I'm a bad person. There was the a Christmas lot. gifts just got shittier. Yeah, the Christmas gifts got, no, they actually just stopped being given. (laughs) It's not that I'm not allowed or that I'm not wanted, but it just further marginalized me because like you said, I'm very active on Facebook. You know, there's a section of Facebook that tells you like, maybe this person will be a good friend. And it says, you know, send friend requests. So I would have these family members, I would be scrolling and they would, I would get to that part and I would say, wait a minute, isn't this person already my friend? Oh, I get it. You unfriended me because of all the religious stuff that I post. Wow. And so a lot of family members just silently 
unfriended me. And this is a quick story that just kind of brings it home as to how it's treated. One of my cousins who was treated very badly by her mother, physically abusive. She would gaslight her. Anyway, so my cousin, she was telling me all about this and she was like, oh, I moved out. My mom was so horrible and thanks for listening to me and giving me an ear and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, of course, you know, I just, it's really messed up that she was like that to you and you don't deserve that. You know, I was just trying to be a good family member and I was scrolling one day and her name came up and I was like, what? So I messaged her and I was like, why would you unfriend me? What did I do wrong? And she said, you're just a negative person. I'm like, why? how did you come to that conclusion that I'm negative? Well, all the stuff you post is always so negative. And I was like, I don't post mostly negative stuff. I post a lot of queries. I make requests for people to help me understand your religion more. She was just like, no, you're just negative, And I just don't want to be around that. She went back to her mom. I was like, I don't know what to even say to that. If you want to deal with abuse and you want to cut me out of your life, I hope you get away from that. I hope she changes, but I don't know what else I can do. There's nothing else that I can do in that situation. That's how I get treated by a lot of my family members. But my mother has a very rare disease. When when that disease finally kind of took her, when she passed, I could not go to Florida to go to the funeral that was there. I was working. If I would have left, they would have fired me. I had to support my family. And so I didn't go, but they had a funeral in Chicago and I went to that one. But the people were berating me, telling me that I was a bad person, a bad son. And that I just, I'm not shit <laughs> because I didn't go to my mom's funeral and I don't care about her. I mean, people said some pretty horrible things, things so horrible. I got screenshots of all the stuff because I don't want to forget. I don't want to get to the point where I see somebody like, hey, how you doing? No, I, I look at that stuff every once in a while because it just reminds me that these are people, these are my relatives because there's a difference for me between relatives and family. I have some relatives that are my family, but a large portion of my relatives are not my family. My aunt just recently died. When she passed, her health was deteriorating. I believe she had uh, a kind of cancer. I can't remember because people just really don't communicate with me uh, for the most part. But when she passed, nobody called me. Nobody even texted me. When I finally did find out, the funeral happened in Chicago and I, I wasn't told about it. And when I talked to my cousin, my uncle was like, why didn't you go to your aunt's funeral? That's real f fuck." up you know I'm like whoa 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 I didn't even know about it nobody told me and then I told my cousin and she was like you're smart you could have figured it out which I don't understand what that even means (laughs) because how am I going to just magically figure my my mind doesn't work that way nobody's does it just uh, it doesn't make any sense and that's what you say when you don't want to tell somebody a thing and then you just want them to take the hit for not knowing yeah. yeah absolutely in the meantime, though, you grew up, you came out of that, you started your own family. So I met my wife when I was 18, I think. We started dating. About two months after dating, we moved in, and the rest is history. My wife had a daughter that was a year and a half old before I met her. And when I met her, I met her daughter not even a month after meeting her. 
I immediately fell in love with her daughter. She captured my heart right away. She was a very, <laughs> she's a very opinionated child. She had a real attitude. Um, you know what? Not attitude. She was sassy. She's always been a sassy person. And I've always considered that to be a good thing. She's always been her own person with the beat of her own drum type deal. And when we were living together, I started doing kind of fatherly things, playing with her, watching movies. We would watch all kinds of stuff. We would paint and do all the stuff that parents do. And eventually we moved and time passed. Uh, I went to the military for a few years. I was in the army for two years. When I was in the army, I actually adopted her when she was, I think, four or five years old. It was very weird. We went into a family court and the family court judge asked to speak to her with, with my wife. And then they asked me to come in and the judge said, hey, do you know this person that's standing here? And she said, yes. And she said, is this person like your father? And she said, yes. And so, boom, I legally adopted her when I was 21 years old. That's my oldest daughter. I also have two other children. Uh, I had one, another daughter when I was in the military and my son, uh, I had him a few, a few years ago. He's, he's not that old yet. He just, he's about to hit double digits. I also wanted to talk about like spanking. I was hit as a kid. That was one of the hallmarks of my childhood was being spanked for things that I did wrong. When I first met my daughter and when I started taking on that fatherly role for a very short period, and I want to say it was less than a month, I would spank her. And it was the same thing. It was just a little swat on the butt. That's all I would do. I would use my hand. One day, it was very quickly after I started, I was like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this thing? I started thinking about like, what did you feel like when that happened to you when you were a kid? And it was never like, well, I've learned my lesson. I'll never do that again. It was, well, I'm not going to do that in front of you. I'm really mad at you right now because you just made me hurt. You hurt me and physically, and that's all I could think of. People who, who defend spanking, a lot of times you'll hear that, well, I got spanked and I've turned out okay. I disagree with that because one, you don't know how that affected you unless you've actually explored it. And two, you think it's okay to hit children. That means you're not okay. That's a problem. I don't want to go too far into it, but there's a wealth of information. It's deleterious. It's harmful. It causes a myriad of issues. I broke that cycle when I was only 19 years old. And I have not hit any of my children since then. It's one of the, if not the only time in our society when people hit somebody without consent and not in self-defense. And it happens to be some of the smallest, most vulnerable people in the society that we do this to. I've known people who would hit their kids and wouldn't hit a dog. Yeah. And I don't condone hitting a dog. So just to be right. clear, it's just so weird to me how so many people don't question that we can navigate all of society without hitting people, but they can't seem to figure out how to work with a child. If you haven't reached the age of reason, then they're not going to understand it. And if they have reached the age of reason, then you should reason with them. 
the cars is folding quick. I'm on my soldier shit. Best salute to catch the boot. Test me in the question will be when they find the rest of you, huh? I think it's simple. I disassemble your mental. And me being here at this moment is not coincidental. Every move I make is deliberate. Watch how I just deliver it. Damn near invincible because they dip me down in the river sticks. But you won't find my Achilles heel because I'm really real. What's the deal? He's ill and his fate is not really sealed. The next thing on your list was navigating being biracial with white passing biracial children. It's funny because my brothers all take on different aspects of our racial makeups. My oldest brother, if there's a sliding scale and on the left is black and on the right is Puerto Rican, in the middle, you're straight biracial. My oldest brother is very far on the left, the black side. My brother that's right, right below him in age, a little bit to the left, but he also uh, has a lot of Puerto Rican in him. So he's a little more black than Puerto Rican, I think, but he does Spanish stuff. And, you know, he uses a lot of euphemisms that Latino people use. My little brother is all the way on the right side. He speaks fluent Spanish, lives in Florida. He speaks his, his accent is perfect. Like he grew up learning Spanish. And me, I don't know where I sit. I'm probably closer to Black than Puerto Rican. Like I said, I don't know Spanish. Uh, I love Puerto Rican food. I love the culture. I want to visit the island and meet some of my family that lives out there. I don't know. I don't know how that would even go. Puerto Rican food (laughs) is awesome. Oh, I love it. It's so good. I just started making, they're called platanos. They're little Mm -hmm. plantains and you cook them and you smash them and then you you fry them. Yeah, I'll do a plantain. I'll do it sweet. I'll do it savory. Like you're serving them. I'm eating them. I'm exactly the same way. I'm trying to kind of write that ship and get more towards the middle because I don't want to dismiss the other side of my heritage. People in February like to post a lot of stuff about Black history, and they go through the the greatest hits like Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, et cetera. But I like to dig a little deeper and start going to places where people may not be aware of some Black history that is not mainstream. Like, for instance, the Black soldiers who were in, I think it was Europe, and they ended up fighting other American soldiers because the people in in wherever it was overseas were allowing the Black soldiers to integrate with the white people and Americans were not having it. So there was actually an American on American kind of mini war where American black soldiers had to pick up arms against American white soldiers. That's the kind of stuff I think people need to see. People need to hear about the bombings, the black wall street, the redlining, the black codes. People need to hear about that stuff. And the reason I think that I'm more inclined to talk about that stuff is because it's hard to be brown or black in America, but there's a lot of white passing Latino people. There's a way to walk that line. There's a lot of Latino people who don't even identify with their Latino heritage and just identify as white. Here in Texas, they'll have white and Hispanic, and they also have white Hispanic. So they literally have a category for people who identify both. But are not, don't have any white heritage in their uh, lineage. Generally, when we're talking about Hispanic, I think we are talking about like that European Spanish influence. Oh, okay. Right. Right. I mean, so that's where it's coming from. It's like those are Europeans and they did come and had a lot of influence on the Americas. It's very funny how many groups have had the influence on the American dynamic in general. We're a big melting pot. You can see that. We're also separated and you can see that too. It's such a weird dynamic. Like you say, I can look at you. 
And from an external perspective, I see a black man. But when I ask you, how do you identify? You say, I identify as biracial, black leaning, but biracial. I wouldn't have even thought about that until I was in a a black women's forum. And they actually have some rules that require a person to be black in order to, for example, post an OP. You can comment if you're not black, but you can't go in and make posts unless you're black. That's like the country club and Reddit. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, the Reddit has this, it's like a black subreddit and the rules kind of change from time to time. Like they say only black people can post from for right now, especially when it's when stuff gets inflammatory. Like when Black Lives Matter was first starting out, there, there was just too many white people in there putting their opinions. And it was like, nope, if you're not black, you can't even make a post. You can only comment. Yeah. And so with this, one of their rules is you have to be black to make a post. I remember seeing a thread where someone made a post and they called it out and they said, you have to be a black woman to make a post. You can't post. The person responded and said, I am black. Looking at them externally, I would not have read them as black. And I think that was what the reaction of the moderators was, was you don't look black. I don't gatekeep the black community. I don't tell people who is and who isn't black. That's a community issue that is outside of my lane. But their response to it was, are you black? And she said, I'm biracial. And they said, okay, then you're not black. Yeah. So what they were saying, well, what they were saying was you identified yourself here. We asked you, are you black? And you responded, I'm biracial. It, It was kind of interesting because there was sort of a back and forth between her saying that she was biracial, her saying that she was black and the black women saying, what, which is it? I find it interesting because they seem to be saying, if you identify as Black, that's fine. But if you keep switching between Black and biracial, then no, that's true. You got to make a choice here because this is a forum for Black women. Are you a Black woman or not? Right. And so I never, as somebody outside of that conversation, had to think of it in those terms. And especially being a white person, I have that white attitude of the person looks black or brown, they're not white, right? right? And so I have that sort of weird privilege position, which is you're not white. It made me think about that. It made me realize I don't see as much diversity as someone else would see that isn't white. Yeah. It's not that I don't see distinctions. I just don't think I see as many distinctions. I think that I have limited capacity to understand the diversity from the outside. When people say, if you're biracial, you're not Black, when I've, people have asked me, well, what are you? Not the common <laughs> question that I get in the way I get it. What are you? And I'm like, you know, I'm a, I'm a person, but my racial makeup, if that's what you're asking about, I'm Black and I'm also Puerto Rican. I'm both. People be like, no, you just, you Black. No. Now I understand that Puerto Ricans also have Black gene. That's, that's part of it. There are Puerto Ricans who are darker than me that are from the island. There's like, slave history in Puerto Rico, plantations were in Puerto Rico, and some of the stuff that used to be grown there is still grown there to this day. I don't think that somebody who's biracial, like if you're not Rachel Dolezal or Nuka Zeus, then if you have a Black parent, you're Black. Like Barack Obama is Black. He's also white. You just got to deal with that. And so how does this feed in with your kids? My oldest daughter, she's not biologically mine, and 
her biological father is a black man. So she's black and white. She's not Latina. She passes as black for the most part. She has some white features, but her skin is probably a little browner than mine or in the same region. But my my middle daughter is whiter than my wife, which makes no sense to me. How I'm dark and my wife is white and we ended up with a child who's very white. I think it may have something to do with my mother, but my son, he is slightly brown. He is a little less brown than me, but he has hair like a white person. And so I don't know what people are going to think about what his racial makeup is. But my middle daughter, you know, she tells people, look, I'm Black and I'm Latina. But at the same time, I would caution her heavily against using the N-word because you can catch a two-piece before you even get to explain anything. And even when you get the explanation out, people may not believe you. And also on top of that, they didn't grow up in that environment like I did. And so for me, it would kind of ring false to even be using that kind of language. That's like Malibu most wanted or something where the white guy was trying to behave as if he grew up in the ghetto or in some kind of bad neighborhood. I missed that one. If my son got into music, I wouldn't want him talking about how, you know, he, he popping packs and doing this and doing like stuff that would pertain to having lived in a situation like I did when I grew up. So in that same vein, and also because of how they look, I don't really use the N-word around them. There are times that I do use it. I don't have a problem with it. And other people who do, that's their problem. I know when there are times when not to use it. Like right now, this is a time where not using it is appropriate. And there's other situations where not using it is appropriate, such as when I'm at my children's school or around certain mixed company, you know? Just certain people, I just feel like, like my grandmother, I would never say it in front of my grandmother. She would just, she would just lose it. She would be very disappointed in me. So, you know, for that, for that reason, there are some people that I stay away from it with. But other than that, it's it's a it's a non-issue for me. You also had some notes here about your brother. There are four of us. So it's my little brother, me, my older brother, and then my oldest brother. So my older brother. We all had a way of coping with the way our childhood was. His was to go to the comfort and the the camaraderie of a gang. So he joined a gang when he was very young, and he continued that life for a good 15 years. And he would sell drugs, and he became a lieutenant in a local gang. He was a big guy. I mean, he still is. He's a big guy. I used to call him one-hit-a-quitter because I've seen him so many times get up to somebody's face and punch him one time, and that person's knocked out. He was that strong. I feel like he could have been an MMA fighter if he ever had anybody who gave him direction for that. So he, he was a drug dealer and a gang member. He dealt with guns, and one day he went to rob a connection of his who had some drugs because that's just the life that they live. There's no honor among thieves a lot of times. And so he pulled a gun on this guy and the guy apparently, you know, his fight or flight kicked in and it was fight. So he grabbed the gun and my brother shot him and killed him. And he admitted to that in court. He got 35 years, which he's, I think he's like 10 or 12 years into it. He will not be out until 2045, I think. It's a big part of my life because I talk to him every day and it was rough at first because I had this thought process, like I'm associating with a person who took somebody's life. 
for a while, it was hard for me to reconcile, to mesh those two things. Like, this is my brother also, but he did kill somebody. It was hard. I don't struggle with it really anymore because he's a different man now and he's paying for his crime and he's paying a heavy price. He has to serve that time and he understands that. But he also realizes if you keep somebody in prison for so long that when they come out, they can't be a productive member of society, then you failed in trying to rehabilitate that person. Because prison is supposed to be a punishment, but it's also supposed to, you're supposed to figure things out in prison. You're supposed to turn your life around in whatever way you feel that is. Some people turn to God. My brother does not. He is also an atheist. I don't know what it was when he finally just figured it out and realized I can't do this. I don't want to be part of a gang anymore. So he just kind of stays to himself. He's a painter. In my opinion, he's a great painter and he's just getting better, but he's a very complicated person. When I talk, I talk to him almost daily. He's a smart person too. It's a shame that he is himself a victim of the way that we lived because if he had never had to feel like he needed to go somewhere to get that feeling of, of family, of, of somebody caring, then he never would have had to turn the gangs. He's admitted that he has an anger issue. He's dealt with it. He deals with it now and he knows how to do it. He's got techniques because, you know, when you're in prison, there's a lot of things that can set a person off, start a fight, start a, a huge fight. But he, he knows how to get away from all of that when it's becoming all too much. It's difficult navigating having a brother who has done a horrendous thing and to not turn your back on that person. It's a, it's a very complicated decision. Heaven's gated, irrelevant revelation hinders your elevation. I'm into telling patients that life is short and the hell is blazing. I'm just a layman, but know that my fucking brain is on several planes of existence simultaneously. Listen, it's hard to explain gift that I've tried to arrange different words into a split infinitive sentence. The same difference. I swear that shit drives me insane, but I'm made different. You can call me Bowser, cause how I be flame spitting. Other rappers hit my shit. Look at they lame written, see the tiger in me, and realize that they tame kittens. The same pimp but it's pretty fucking close because I so you have a point in here as well about an argument that led to some family division after I realized I was an atheist I was shouting it from the rooftops I was letting people know hey you know what I don't believe in God that's just how it is and people did not receive that well and my mother was one of those people she was questioning you don't think there's anything and, and we got into an argument about it. And sometimes, you know how arguments morph? Something that's been itching at you might come out because you're already mad about sure. something else. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I was pretty upset about the way we were raised. And the way when I say the way we were raised, this is a part where I'm going to try to tread lightly because, you know, anybody who hears this in my family, there's going to be people who are going to be upset by this. At the same time, I don't want some people to think that I think that they didn't give a damn about me at all because that's not the case. But the way that I was raised was, you know, the difference between right and wrong. We've told you once. So now anytime you mess up, we're going to come down on you hard. There weren't a lot of hugs it wasn't a lot of, you know, like when I talk to my kids, it's I love you a lot. I say it a lot. We say it a lot. It's just how this family is. I give my son a hug from time to time. My oldest daughter is, she's kind of like, mm, I don't like being touched that much. So our hugs are less, but we bond in different ways. That was a focus that I turned that argument to. 
And I couldn't get her to admit that there were some things that she did wrong in parenting. She was miles ahead of my biological father because he just gave up and quit on his family. Him and my mom separated. They got divorced. We were living with him for a short period of time and drugs kind of took over his life and became the most important thing in his life. And we were secondary. So we went to live with my mom and we lived with my mom until we moved out. And there was another short period when I was about 17 or 18 when I moved back in. And that was very short lived too. He was still doing drugs or whatever. So we were having that argument and I brought it up. I was like, you know, you didn't do this and you didn't do that. And she was like, no, I did. I did fine. I was not a bad mother. And I was like, it's not that you were a bad mother, but there were some things that you could have done differently. And that had an effect on us. And she wouldn't admit that. And I said, you know what? Until you admit that you also don't treat my children the same as you treat other children in the family. Like my brother's kid got a lot more attention than my kids did. My kids would rarely see my, my mom and my stepdad. He came into the picture when I was probably like 10 or nine or something like that. And he raised us and he cared, but he also came from a family that was very strict. They didn't show the emotion and the love. Everything was strict disciplinarian type stuff. So we didn't speak for a year because I told her, I said, until you're ready to apologize, I don't want to talk to you. I just can't. I can't call you and act like everything's okay. And eventually we did. I don't remember exactly what brought us back together. But we did talk. She apologized. She finally apologized and said, you know, what? I realized that there were some things that I didn't do right. And I said, you know what? I realized that I kind of bombarded you during that conversation and I was very aggressive. And that often makes people defensive. And I can understand how I might have played a role in you not wanting to admit that, because when somebody's got you on the defensive, you don't want to give them a point, even if you know it's true in your mind. So <laughs> that was a big sticking point. And I'm glad that we got back together because she died not a few years later. When she actually passed away, we were talking several times a day. She was bedridden and just needed people to talk to. My mother had a disease called Hermansky-Pudlak syndrome. It is a very rare disease, but it disproportionately affects Puerto Ricans from the Northwest part of the island. It has to do with some genetic coding. I hate to use that word, but I think it's one in every 1,800 individuals has HPS and one in 21 people in Northwest Puerto Rico uh, has this HPS type one gene. It can pass it down. So my mother had that. And some of the hallmarks of Hermansky Pudlak is albinism. So she was albino, which also had an effect on my life too, because people would think that she was white. We would go to the laundromat and do our clothes. And my brother was, when we were done, he, he was getting ready to take the bag out. My mom put the bag down in front of the door and my brother walked up and picked it up. And the uh, manager of the laundromat was like, what are you doing? Why are you stealing those clothes? And my brother was like, these are my clothes. She was like, no, I just saw that woman put those clothes down. And he was like, that's my mother. No, it's, that's your mother. And my mom had to come over. And my mom was a, she's not the type of person to bite her tongue. She unloaded on that lady how dare you she was just losing it that kind of stuff happened from time to time and that actually happened to me too that kind of passed on because my daughter being white i've had people hey is, is that your kid <laughs> mind your business call the police if you really feel that bad about it but, yeah so my mom had this very rare disease and that's what took her life she didn't know that she had this disease until one day she couldn't breathe 
and we had to take her to the hospital. They put her on oxygen and they finally diagnosed her and she had to have a lung transplant. And she waited on the list and she had a lung transplant and it helped her live for another five or seven years, I think. And then eventually that wasn't working and she got it back on the list for another transplant. But before they could get her a donor lung, she passed. You also wanted to talk a little bit about your wife. My wife, like I said, when I met her, I was very young. She's four years older than I am. So I was like 18 and she was 22. She stood by my side. I'm grateful every day for it because she saw my bipolar at my worst. There was times when she had enough of me and had to make me leave the house because I was just too much to deal with. People who have bipolar sometimes when they get manic, they snap. I used to break my own things and just yell and just be very angry and loud. And it was a lot to deal with. So sometimes she had to kick me out, but she stayed. She stayed with me through the army stuff when I was going out drinking. I'm ashamed to admit this. I drove drunk once when I was in the army. Just I was out at a nightclub. And the next thing I know, I wake up and I'm in the driveway with my foot sticking out of the car. It's so embarrassing. Even that, she just always stuck by me. For better or worse, she definitely took that part of it very seriously because I did a lot of bad things. I was not faithful for a very long time. She still took me back. She had every right to just tell me, just screw off, just go, go. I don't want anything to do with you. The only thing I want is you to take care of your kids. And when I wasn't even doing that, I was doing the bare minimum for a time when I was in my most manic stages. It's just a testament to who she is as a person. When she realized that I had bipolar disorder, she actually felt bad for, for me. After all the things that I've done, she realized that a lot of it was outside of my control. And she just was like, I'm sorry that you had to go through all of that. Like, she wasn't even thinking about herself. She wasn't like, oh, man, this dude has bipolar. He could snap at any moment. I just wanted to make sure that that's known. She's an important part of my life. She helps me be complete as a person. And I know that may sound kind of corny, but I don't care. My wife is like my best friend. I have a, another best friend, my other buddy that I do a lot of stuff with and that we see eye to eye on almost everything. And my other friend that I play Dungeons and Dragons with, he's a close second. I've known my best friend for 20 something years. And I've known the other guy that I play D&D with for probably three or four years, but they're very close as far as how much I trust them and appreciate their friendship. And my wife is at the top of that list though. You also had, I guess, some issues with bipolar when you were in the army. They don't acknowledge it because I wasn't diagnosed until well after I left. I would do whatever I wanted. I was a heavy wheel vehicle mechanic. I would sleep in vehicles. I did work. I managed, they called it the tool truck. It was a truck with a back, like a trailer. And inside the trailer was just hundreds of tools and a, a 50 cal machine gun. And I was in charge of all of that, but I was not a good soldier for quite a while. I was a good soldier at first. I followed the rules. I did everything to the T in the beginning, but my bipolar, when it kicked off and it started really kicking into high gear, I started self-medicating with cannabis. And that was all she wrote. I gave up. I was done. I didn't like the military anymore. I didn't like the way that we were treated. My sergeant, when I was in the military, was two years older than me. And he could tell me to do whatever. He could tell me to shut up. And there was nothing I could do about it. When I joined the military, it was in February of 2001. I got to my permanent post 
in July of 2001. And we all know what happened in September of that year. That changed everything for everybody on the base. We used to have to do gate guard to guard the gates. It used to be an open post where you could just drive straight from the freeway right into the post. And so they stopped that and made it so that every entrance had soldiers at it and we would rotate different soldiers. And when it was our turn, we were out there gate guarding and there was a sergeant who we were joking around, we were having a good time, and he was this, and that was he was like that. And I was like, shut the hell up. And he was like, What? And I was like, shut the hell up, man. Come on. And he was like, excuse me, private. And I was like, whoa, 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 when did I become private again? I thought we was all joking around. And he was like, No, you remember your place. And that was when I was done. Because I was like, You if you can just check me and make me feel small because you have that power. And if I do something about it, then I get in trouble. If I even talk back, I get in trouble. It was over from that point. I started smoking. We would go out the back of the motor pool and just drive around by the gun ranges and where they kept all the tanks and helicopters and just smoke and listen to loud music. And we did whatever we wanted. Me and my buddy, we were tight. We hung out and did everything together. Even taught me how to drive a stick. I had good times in the army, but all my good times in the army were away from the military life. The only thing that I had fun with was shooting guns and going out into the field because it was kind of like camping. It was camping. And you had a specific doctor story? Was that the... Yeah, the doctor story. In 2012, I was smoking cannabis all day, every day. I had a problem. And I realized that at one point, I said, what am I doing? This is another, like a moment of clarity for me. It's like at the end of uh, the matrix, when they're driving that real weird ship and it goes out of the darkness and into the light for a moment, just enough to see the sun for a second. That's what I had. I had this revelation. And I was like, man, I need to see somebody. So I checked myself into this. It was an outpatient drug abuse program. And I went in it. They started me on this 12 step stuff. And I was like, look, man, I ain't buying this higher power stuff. It's not, it's just not happening for me. And so I went through the program and then I waited about a month and I went back to smoking, but I went back to smoking with the thought that I'm going to keep it under control because it makes me feel better. But if I do it too much, it masks who I really am. And it turns me into kind of like a zombie where I would just sit around and play video games all day. So I got myself back on track, but this doctor never liked it. So I'm going to her every couple of months. First, it was like every week. The program was every day for like a month or two months or something like that. Then I was seeing her more frequently. And then as time goes by, she lets me see her less frequently. And so it was coming up every three months, I would go see her and she would ask me how I'm doing. And it would be cordial conversations. Some days when I first started, I'd be a little more on edge, but five years in, I was doing well. At least I thought I was doing well because I was I was living a little bit better. I wasn't having all these wild outbursts like I was before. It was happening a little bit, but that was because the medication that I was on, it worked at first to curb some of the issues like mood stabilizers and stuff like that. But eventually over time, I think it started to wear off. I'm an advocate for legalizing cannabis. And when I say I'm an advocate, I mean like I've gone out and spoken out at my village hall and I actually changed minds the state I live in, different municipalities can choose to make cannabis legal or illegal. 
even though it's legal statewide, you can vote to ban it in any place. Every place has their own choice. In my town, I changed minds and people voted for it and we won by one vote. Older folks were doing reefer madness testimonies at the mic and I countered that with actual facts. You know, getting involved is very important. If you want to change something, get involved because I got involved and I changed. So anyway, I was telling the doctor about that and I said, I'm going to speak out. And she was like, you know what? I actually spoke out in a meeting against cannabis. This was around the time where I wanted to get a cannabis card. And she was like, I won't sign up for that. I won't sign off on that. I was like, you know what? All right, that's cool. And I just quietly left and I went and found a new doctor. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. The new doctor wanted me to get my medical records so she can get an idea of what she was working with. So I went, requested my medical records. They printed off a hundred some odd pages. It was all these pages of all the visits that I did and every note she took. And some weird stuff stuck out to me. First off, she categorized me as a woman. She was always, it's, she was feeling this way. This was happening to her. Very weird. I don't know why she did that. I don't know if it was a glitch or if it was just her being passive aggressive in her own way, but I was always labeled as a woman and I was always labeled as like combative or manic or fidgety. And I remember clearly that I wasn't like that for almost all of my visits. There were a few visits at first where I was like that, but I was going through a lot of changes at that moment. When I stabilized, everything was okay for a while. For years, I was fine. And she would always say that I was like stressed out or being uh, flighty and stuff like that. She used a lot of different words to describe me that were not true. I was so mad because all this time she wasn't trying to help me. I don't know what her agenda was, but it was not to help me. In my mind, she was just doing what she thought was best. And she resented me for still using cannabis. I think she took it out on me that way. I think that was her method. And so I made a complaint. And I left and I went to another hospital and spoke to a new doctor who put me on different medications. And that was in August of 2020. After that, that doctor was at a residency and she was done. And so I found a new doctor and this new doctor said, no, no, we need to put this medication. We need to tweak this a little bit. And I was like, all right, you know, you're the, you're the doctor. And I followed her lead. And that's when I was able to start writing again it was because my mind cleared up enough for me to stay on target and also not be cloudy. You know, I could think clearly again, the way that I'm having this conversation and I'm not like, wait, what was I saying? You know, I'm not doing that because I can clearly see what's going on and I can stay on topic. And those are things that are important to me because I wasn't able to do it. It still happens from time to time where I'll lose what thought, but I think everybody does that. Plus I'm 40. So I don't know, you know, maybe my mind's slipping a little bit. This is maybe the beginning. I don't know, but it's nowhere near as bad as it used to be. I'm glad that you got that sorted. And that was a really strange story about the medical records. (laughs) Yeah. It was was. pretty weird. Yep. I mean, I would worry that they had the wrong medical records. That, you know, I, I thought because I, when I read through it, I was like, wait a minute, is this me? And sure enough, my name is on every sheet of paper. 
It was about me. So you wanted to actually devote a section on the agenda to the bipolar. You've touched on it a little bit, but you wanted to talk, I think, more in depth about it. Bipolar disorder is a burden and an asset. Like, think Robin Williams. He had lots of issues, but those issues were what made him a star too, what made him a one-of-a-kind person. I liken myself to Robin Williams, not that I'm a great entertainer or anything like that. The way my mind works, I feel like it's very similar to the way his mind works. My outlet, it just happens to be music. It's where I get my ability to make music. The medication helps me control it. The whole Cyclops analogy, it's had a lot of effects, a lot of negative effects. I almost got somebody killed because of my bipolar disorder. I believe that I've had it since I was a kid because I've always been this way. My, my nickname when I was a kid was Motormouth. That's what everybody called me because I would not stop talking. And people used to be like, be quiet, man. You just you keep going. You're like the Energizer Bunny. Take the battery out. Before I left for the military, I kind of had a last hurrah. Being the type of person that I was, my brother gave me some peach candies with hits of acid on each one. I ate all three. And I was tripping hard. And when I say tripping hard, I mean, like, we almost got shot at because we were riding around and this car pulled up. And I was like, what are you guys doing? Why are you parked next to us? They rolled the window down and pointed a gun at us. It was a wild night. We were hanging out with my brother and my best friend at the time and like six or seven other people. We had two cars full of people. We went to several nightclubs and then we went back to one of the people's mom's house because his mom was out of town. We were trying to wait until the day break. So I spent six hours talking to a group of eight people who just hung on my every word. I don't remember what I said to this day because I was tripping so hard. I was giving my thoughts, the freeway analogy that I was using where all the words just come across my mind, it was all coming out of my mouth. They were just all eating it up. I think that was one of the times where my bipolar really showed through. Also, one of my childhood friends, we were walking down an alley being real loud. And this guy came out, he was mad. He was like, shut the hell up, stupid kids. And I'm walking and I kept walking and I was like, fuck you. My friend turned, he was like, Sean, shut up. And I was like, why? Why do I don't care about what that dude got to say? He was like, Sean, please turn around. I turned around. This guy had a gun pointed under his chin. It's like, keep talking. You'll see what happens. And I was very scared. I used to have episodes like that where I would get myself into a lot of wild situations because of my mouth. That bipolar thing really shaped a lot of who I was and who I am now. (laughs) Some intense stories. (laughs) Yeah. And so you have a section here about your dad also yeah are you talking about the international night type thing i assume so yes okay so now mind you this is when i'm going to the magnet school they taught languages you could pick between four languages uh, german french italian and spanish and i chose spanish of course because my family wasn't going to have me doing anything else which was weird considering that i didn't get taught it when i was a child but this school 
would have international night. And so you go back, you go home and you come back and everybody brings, it was like a potluck and you go learn about different cultures and everything. And I was so excited. We were all going to go and we went to the store and we bought some pies and that was what we were going to bring. And I accidentally dropped one of the pies and because we were stuck out in front of the house because my dad was not home. My biological father was out doing drugs doing his own thing. And so we were waiting and waiting. Eventually it's like, oh, well, you know, it's about to start in like a half hour. I wonder where dad is. Dad still didn't come. And eventually we just were like, okay, well, we're going to miss international night. And that was the kind of stuff that he did. I think it's unfortunate that he never cared enough about us. Like right now he lives in the city. He lives maybe 25 minutes away from me. I talked to him like twice in 15 years because he just isn't interested in being a part of our lives. He talks to my brother, my oldest brother, a little more, but I'm an atheist, so you know he definitely doesn't want to talk to me. He's also very big on Jesus, so I think that's part of it, but he also doesn't really talk to my other brothers either. And he yeah, has some I, mental health issues, too. I Sorry. don't even know what to say to that. I mean, I guess on some level, a parent that isn't interested, it probably is best that they don't try to engage if they can't have a legitimate interest yeah i agree the best thing he could have done was walk away if he didn't care enough but i do think for children that are younger that can be a little hard Uh, yeah absolutely especially when my stepdad he came in and he assumed the father role very quickly he did a lot of the things that my dad wouldn't do but like i was telling earlier his family is they're such disciplinarians his mom was the same way. She was, she was a disciplinarian. She was very nice, but she also did not take your crap at all from anybody in the family. There's a hierarchy, especially in black families where the older people, you do essentially what they say. You don't ask questions. You, you, there's deference to be had when it comes to the older people. They're right. You're wrong. Like in Matilda, I'm big, you're small. I'm smart. You're stupid. Like that's how it is. I remember one time my uncle, uh, he was like, why didn't you, why didn't you clean up? And he, my brother said, I'm, I'm, I got sidetracked. Sorry. And my uncle said, you ain't old enough to get sidetracked. I was like, what does that even mean? Anybody can get sidetracked. What does that mean? You're not old enough. And there's also the phrase, you'll know nothing about that there. We often used to hear. And it's like, you say something, start talking about a subject. Oh, you don't know nothing about that boy. Like we would get that all the time. It was a lot of talking down. That's just how family was. There was some mental illness issues with like my dad too. He may have bipolar disorder. He's had a lot of things that were very similar to me. The hypersexuality that's a, one of the symptoms of bipolar disorder. He had a lot of different companions. He would see a lot of women coming in and leaving out. It was a lot. That was one of the questions that I had, because you described your family as kind of having a dismissive attitude about mental illness and, and mental Absolutely. health and just saying, there's yeah. nothing wrong with you. <laughs> Keep plugging and pretend you're not having a problem yeah. or get down. over it or whatever you're supposed to do oh, with build, that. Yeah. Build a bridge and get over it was one of the quotes that I would hear. Build a bridge and get over it. Because if you were getting that, and that's the family attitude, I wondered how many other folks in the family might have been dealing with similar issues that they might have been able to get help for had the people around them been more supportive of getting them help. That is a huge issue. I don't really know how big of an issue it is in the Latino community, but the Black community has a lot to work on when it comes to mental health. We have got to be better about that. 
I'm trying to help and be part of that, being better about it. And I've seen more and more Black people who are coming around to the idea of you need to worry about your mental health. Everybody has something that they could talk to somebody about. Nobody is exempt from addressing it in some way. Everybody's had some kind of trauma. Everybody has their quirks. Everybody has their thing that they might want to deal with. And speaking to somebody about that, even if you don't have a bipolar disorder or an ADHD or an OCD or something like that, you can still see somebody and be helped. And we need to do that more. Yeah, I think if I had two pieces of advice to folks, if there's somebody out there that has thought about seeing a counselor and is having hesitation, I would say, first of all, don't be afraid, go and see a counselor, go and see a mental health professional. If you have an uncomfortable experience, if you go and it's, it doesn't feel right, or you don't feel at ease with the person, try another one. Don't feel like like counseling should be awkward or uncomfortable. You should feel comfortable with your counselor and you should be working with somebody who makes you feel at ease. So if you go in and you have an uncomfortable experience, don't think it's because counseling is uncomfortable for you. Understand that different counselors are going to offer you a different experience and they're not all going to be a good fit for you. So go in, give it a shot. If you do a session or two and you just think this is not working, then try another counselor. I've had friends who had a really bad experience. And then when they went with another counselor that was a better fit for them, they had a great experience. Even I, I've gone twice. And the first one I thought was good. And the second one I thought was excellent. So even I had a different experience. The first one that I was actually satisfied with, I found when I tried later with another counselor, I actually just had an even better experience with that person. I agree. I had the same thing. Like I said, the original doctor that diagnosed me and that worked, she was an addiction specialist. That's why she had such a bent towards making me not use cannabis at all because she doesn't think that there are any good qualities to it. That doctor was not a fit for me and I didn't realize it for years and I was unhappy and I didn't even realize that was why. And then I went and saw the other doctor. She was doing really well, but she was, she had to leave. And then I got the new doctor that I have now and she's excellent. I have a great rapport with her. She's going to be around for at least another year and a half, two years before her residency is up. Even then, hopefully I can find another good doctor to work with. I do a lot of research on my doctors before I go to them. You can go see what they're graded as. Doctors nowadays, there's like Yelp for doctors where you can go and see what this person has been rated. And it's hard. You can kind of take it with a grain of salt. People are people and they may not have, you know, the greatest outlook on something or maybe it's something that they did. But for the most part, you can get a feel when you start to see a pattern of reviews and you look into a doctor and you find one that kind of like, oh, well, this person does things that I like, you know, so maybe I'll go see them. That's kind of what I did. And so I found a great doctor. We're going well. As long as all this, this medication, this cocktail that I have right now continues to work, I feel like I can do I can do some great stuff, especially musically. You mentioned Yelp. If you're out there and you feel like you want to see a counselor, don't be afraid to go and look at reviews. See what the different counselors are like. They don't all specialize in the same things. I remember when I was trying to help somebody find a counselor for their child, one of the things that I did was reach out to the counselor that I thought did a really good job with me. And she recommended that we find somebody who had addiction as a specialty for this particular case, because it was somebody dealing with addiction. 
But you can also have people who, for example, are not qualified to talk to somebody about physical abusive relationships. So different doctors are going to have different specialties. Everyone is not as qualified with everything. And it's very important to get somebody who's got a history with what you're dealing with. And also, I think the reviews would help because especially if people are describing what they like or don't like about the counselor, I do that with movie reviews. It doesn't matter to me if you liked or didn't like the movie. What I want to know is why. Right. Because if you didn't like something about it, it might be the type of thing that doesn't bother me. Like maybe I would still like the film because the thing that bothered you maybe was the graphics and the graphics don't have to be that great for me. So if you know why a person likes a thing or doesn't like a thing, it means a lot more than just they did or didn't like it. Right. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. You had some more stuff you want to talk about with your music. I paint a picture. I want people to be able to visualize everything I say. And everything I say has to make sense. You can Google rap lyrics that don't make sense. And you will be surprised at how many rap lyrics are just a jumble of words that means nothing. I make a point to make sure that everything I say has a point to it, has some kind of visual effect that you can have while you're listening to it. Right now, I'm working with a producer. I do a lot of online, like they call it the reaction committee. You know how people watch videos and you can see them on the screen and they just react to whatever's happening in the video. Yeah, I do that. There's a whole group of us. We're called the Petty Family. A lot of people that are in the group that I I essentially go against are these hyper angry, super religious people. They're just not good people. They do horrible things. They say horrible things and they misrepresent atheism. And so we kind of fight back against that. This guy made a horrible diss rap. When I started writing again, that was one of the first things I wanted to do. I wrote a track and I was like, let me see if I can write a diss track about this guy. Let me see if I can do something that's pointed and has a, a real direction. And so I did it and the people in the community loved it. So I made two more. Then I started making other tracks. There's a a show that comes on on Wednesdays that I watch. And this producer is one of the hosts of the show. He had me on the show. And at the end of the episode, they had me do a a rap, one of my tracks. And the producer was like, man, I got to work with you. I want to have you have an album out by either the end of this year or sometime early in next year. I'm really excited about the opportunity and the prospect of possibly putting an album out. I was kind of like, oh, I wish I would have uploaded it because I want you to hear my music. And I wish you would have been able to talk more about it. But when you do hear it, I think you'll like it. If you don't hate rap, you'll probably like what I do. Know that I'm here dissing and that be my sole mission I'm starting a coalition, I know that you're fucking wishing That you could walk a mile in my boots with the snow drifting And get yourself so lifted that you get your soul lifted Pro and I'm prolific with words but I'm so vicious I'm a chef that keeps it hot, never serving them cold dishes I live the high life and habits since 
pole pimping. I was a young man that wouldn't stop aiming for grown women. But all fair and love and war. Fuck it, we can take it to the fucking source. But face it that your fate is in the fucking morgue. I hit your house and paint dicks all on your fucking door. I will fist pump in your face like Jersey fucking Shore. Switch up the motherfucking flow for no reason. Cause oh, I'm so seasoned. Might as well show on my demons as long as I'm breathing. I know I'm a heathen. I got so much beef in my life that I'll never be known as a vegan. If you ride with me, I'm gonna bat like I'm Negan and leave the opposition stiff like they outside when it's freezing. I'm breezing past MCs in my region, leaving reaching the weakest defense. They seeking out someone to lead the legion. You best believe it's me in the game that you peep for free. No, I came to release the heat and attempts to defeat the beast that spit the flame frequently. The fucking game's rigged, plus there's so much damn secrecy. So much that they hid, how can we not split it equally? I just want to live on my 40 acres, leave me be. With my wife and kids, I'ma hop right off the grid, disappear like a magic trick. Pop up at your house with a smile and my magic stick. Abracadabra, I stab a back. Cadaver never have a fuck to give Why give a fuck when I have a Arsenal in my brains Them connected to gray matter That'll make me snap and splatter Your shit in a brain batter Yes, you can go to YouTube. My account name is Midwest Grow Guy. And that name comes from the fact that because I have a, a medical cannabis card, so that's where the name comes from. I don't know why I started uploading all the tracks that I have on that channel. It's youtube.com slash C slash Midwest Grow Guy. Or you can just search Midwest Grow Guy. That's three words, Midwest Grow and Guy. And you'll see me do some tracks. If you're interested in people who grow cannabis, you can see I got some catalog stuff that is there. And I also have a praying mantis that I keep as a pet. And I got some videos of him. I try to keep it as a nice rounded out channel. I also do live streams. Like I just did a live stream the other day where we just sat back and watched some funny commercials and some funny videos. And I had a couple of my friends from the Petty family on. So if you subscribe to me at Midwest Grow Guy or Midwest Maverick, which is Midwest and then M-A-V-E-R-I-K. There's no letter C in it. That's my stage name. I'm Midwest Maverick. I have more subscribers on that one so I can do the streaming thing. And if you want to catch a stream when I do them, we have a lot of fun. People really like it. We'll include those links in the description for folks. Do you have anything else that you wanted to talk about? We have a couple minutes left. I think that as a group, men need to be more concerned with the plight of women. The women have it so horrible when it comes to how men are, and we need to do better when it comes to how we treat women in general. I'm not like chastising anybody. I'm just saying I get locker room talk. I understand. I understand what it's like to be a guy. But there's also a way that you can do things and be respectful. Just pointing out that a woman is attractive is one thing. But, you know, there's a way to to cross a line and get, and it doesn't have to be in the presence of women. It perpetuates a culture that allows us to denigrate women and keep them down, kind of handmaid's tailish. I just really am against that. I don't know if it's because I have daughters. I don't think so. I think it's just because my thoughts on the issue have evolved over time. And I've seen how women get treated. Every woman I know that I've ever had a a slightly in-depth conversation with has been leered at at a young age, definitely touched without their consent. A lot of them have been assaulted. 
all of them have been called the B word. I actually have a song I had to rewrite a little bit because I had that word in there. I'm not part of that in-group. Women can call other women that word. I just won't. You can, you can have your thoughts about it. You can feel how you want about it. I don't police other people's language, but I do try to ask people to be respectful, like especially in the presence of women. That's my thoughts. Thanks for putting that out there. I want to express my appreciation for you coming on and talking a little bit about your background. Well, thank you for having me. This is a very interesting thing. I, this is the first time I've ever done something like this. I think it, it went very well. It was, it was an interesting conversation. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.